Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm your host, Father Miles Hickson, and joining me again today for this bonus episode as co-host is Father Creighton McElveen. Creighton, it's great to have you again. Yeah, excited to continue our conversation and jump into the fun that the rosary is. Right. So today's is a bonus episode. And so first, let me just explain what I mean by that. The way we kind of format the Sacramentalist podcast is we have what we call main episodes. Those are the ones in your podcast feed that have numbers. And then we try to produce bonus episodes related to the main episodes. So a bonus episode is some sort of supplement that teases out maybe a very small theme or just one idea or a tangential idea related to a main episode. Main episodes are normally Father Wes and I, and then bonus episodes can be with anyone, one of us, three people, four people. It can be a bunch of anything. And so if you haven't listened to our most recent main episode, which was on devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, then go back and listen to that, because today we're taking a deeper dive into just one particular, but albeit very, very popular devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and that is the Rosary. We felt that this topic deserved its own episode because not only is it the most recognized Marian devotion of the Western Church, It is, as I said, the most popular and widely practiced Western personal Catholic devotion of any sort. So with that sort of introduction, let's just jump into the rosary. Let's begin by talking about the history of the rosary. So knotted prayer ropes or even strings of beads for tracking prayers, these these are an ancient practice in addition in the Christian faith. We, we know that the Desert Fathers, for example, which are early, early, around the time of the first ecumenical council, they're using prayer ropes, which are still used in Eastern Christianity, to keep up with the number of Jesus prayers that they're saying. The Jesus prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, according to pious tradition, The particular form of the rosary that we have and that we're going to talk about today was given by Mary herself in an apparition to St. Dominic in the year 1214. Uh, Historically, we have various forms that relate to what we would call the Dominican rosary that dates to all the way back in the 9th century. So using prayer ropes, using beads, Interestingly, the old English word bead actually just means prayer. So they started calling the little objects that we call beads prayer things because that's how often they were used and what they were most associated with. This sort of practice in the church goes way back and it's developed along different lines in both the East and the West. Yeah, and and to add another historical point, uh, there's a connection between uh, what we have in the rosary now, the the Dominican rosary, with the 150 Hail Marys that are said, and the practice of the monastic offices. Uh, so the core of the of the daily office, also known as the the breviary um, or the liturgy of the hours, is the recitation of the Psalms. The the smaller, lesser hours, uh, not lesser in importance, but just shorter. Uh, in the midday, they're just made up of, of really just psalms. Uh, 
so the the monastic program of praying through all 150 psalms uh, was considered by some to be sort of taxing on the laity. The monastic individuals had their entire time and life and day to consecrate to the hours of prayer. And so there was an attempt uh, historically at some point, probably before St. Dominic, to associate praying uh, 150 Hail Marys or some type of prayer uh, as the sort of lay version of saying all 150 psalms. So there, there's this sort of connection between uh, or interplay between the monastic and the lay spirituality and how those really do look different and how the church has been trying to, to A, get the laity praying, uh, and B, to, to form a sense of continuity and connection between what the cloistered monastics are doing and then what the, the individuals um, working and, and living in, in, uh, in the world outside, uh, try, trying to stitch those two things together, uh, which I think is actually a really beautiful uh, sort of adaptation of the monastic practice. Right. And I think it also just goes to a time period when people couldn't read. The monks were educated. They could read their breviaries. They could read the offices and the Psalms, but a lay person couldn't. And so being able to say a hundred Our Fathers, 150, 150 Hail Marys, 150 something else, this was their way of, I think, pastorally inviting lay people into kind of We've we've talked about the phrase on the, the the podcast before, and even I've talked about the book, the monkhood of all believers. That the prayer life of monasticism is meant to be a gift for the entire church, and that while lay people are not called to it, they are invited to participate into it to degrees, and that the rosary is 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 kind of a crowning um, development within that. And speaking of, of crowning, um, uh, the, the sort of tangential to the Dominican rosary or kind of set alongside it is something called the Franciscan crown, also known as the seraphic rosary. And it's simply a variant of the, the Dominican rosary that we all know and, and probably are most familiar with. But instead of five decades, five sets of 10 prayers, and mysteries. The Franciscan crown has seven decades. So if you find one, um, you know, it's, it's longer. It's just, it's the, the same setup, uh, the actual beads and everything. It's just has the additional two decades, but the practice of the Franciscan crown began sometime early in the, in the 15th century amongst Franciscans in Italy. And the seven decades commemorate the seven joys of the Blessed Virgin. And those seven joys are the Annunciation, the Visitation, the Nativity of our Lord, the Adoration of the Magi, the Finding in the Temple, the Resurrection of our Lord, and then finally, either mentioned as a single or, or kind of clumped together as, as, as a whole, is the Assumption of Our Lady and the Coronation of the Virgin 
as mentioned in, in Revelation 12, etc. Uh, pious tradition states that in 1422, an apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary took place in Assisi to a Franciscan novice named James in a similar way to St. Dominic. And this Franciscan novice as a child had the custom of offering daily to the Virgin Mary a crown of roses. And when he entered into the friar's minor, he was upset and distressed that he couldn't continue that practice. And Our Lady appeared to him to, to give him comfort and showed him another daily offering that he might do, which was to pray every day, seven decades of Hail Marys, meditating between each on one of the seven joys that, that we mentioned earlier. And the reason why the Franciscan crown is called the seraphic rosary is that it's also deeply associated with saint bonaventure and it's called seraphic because uh, the doctors of the church have additional sort of titles uh, saint thomas aquinas for instance is called the angelic doctor uh, saint bernard is the mellifluous doctor and saint bonaventure is the seraphic doctor so by gaining his endorsement and his uh, sort of promotion, uh, the Franciscan crown also took on the, the name, the Seraphic Rosary. And uh, it's very common amongst Franciscans today. It is, it is essentially their version of the rosary. So a lot of Franciscan tertiaries and, and associates will uh, pray the, the Franciscan crown but it's essentially the same thing. It's just, again, a variation on the theme. And I think you bring up a good point there of this, this word rosary. What does it even mean? And it is related to this idea of the rose being this flower of honor for the Virgin Mary and then a crown of roses being offered to her. And so the rosary is this Latin word rosarium of kind of circlet or crown of roses, which is related then to the beads, the devotion of Mary. So just kind of thinking after the medieval period when the rosary is kind of being formulated and coming into the practice that we now have it, uh, the later Council of Trent kind of solidified it. And then it remains in essence unchanged until the 20th century. Now in the early 1900s, a prayer called the Fatima prayer is added. And that's a prayer that if you're familiar with Fatima in Portugal, uh, early 1900s, the Blessed Virgin Mary appears to three children, gives some information, gives some prophecies, and there's a prayer that's given. And that prayer is then added at the end of each decade of the rosary. That's very common among Roman Catholics today. And then probably the biggest kind of alteration was in 2002, Pope John Paul II, who's now Pope St. John Paul II, added an additional set of mysteries. Now we'll talk about what mysteries are in a moment, and we'll have a discussion about this additional set that he added. So that's kind of a very quick sketch outline of the history and development of the rosary, having its roots in monasticism and coming in as what it is today, the most popular lay devotion among Western Catholic Christians. I mean, they're on, they're on about every rearview mirror of Catholics that, that you see, right? There's, and there's tattoos of them. There's stickers. It's, it's just known like to see someone with a rosary in their hand is this hallmark of Catholic devotion. 
So now let's talk about actually praying the rosary. So if you are listening to us and you've been praying the rosary for decades, huh, then some of what we're going to say might be a little bit, um, a little bit basic, but I hope that you'll glean something out of it. But if you're sitting there listening to us and you're either going, oh, I'm not sure the rosary is something that's meant for us to do. We're Anglicans. We're not Roman Catholics. Or you're just kind of saying, yeah, it's out there, but it's not really for me. I don't have a problem with it, but I don't want to do it. Then I hope this conversation can help guide you towards at least seeing the benefit of it and why, as you just mentioned a moment ago, Father Creighton, all of these saints in the Middle Ages and since, and even before, are, are objective holy people. They are saints of the church, and the rosary was a core devotion in their life. So I think if we're trying to be honest and wrestle faithfully with the history of devotional practices, to ignore the rosary because we might have biases against it is being uh, dishonest. So we need to jump in and wrestle with it. So the first thing I want to do is actually quote uh, St. Pope John Paul II. And he, he, he releases this encyclical in 2002 where he adds these extra mysteries, but he just gives us a beautiful introduction to the rosary. And so this in its Latin title is Rosarium Virginis Maria, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes. And here's a, a paragraph from this. He says, the rosary though clearly Marian in character, is at heart a Christocentric prayer. In the sobriety of its elements, it has all the depth of the gospel message in its entirety, of which it can be said to be a compendium. It is an echo of the prayer of Mary, her prenatal magnificat, for the work of the redemptive incarnation which began in her virginal womb. With the rosary, the Christian people sit at the school of Mary and are led to contemplate the beauty of the face of Christ and to experience the depths of his love. Through the rosary, the faithful receive abundant grace as though from the very hands of the mother of the Redeemer. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to just sum up what the rosary is and and sort of why it's important uh a good good friend of mine father jordan gettings who is a priest in texas is shout out father jordan um hope yeah i hope he listens hope he listens peter cypress texas we're for you yeah exactly um he uh we have a ward of the society of mary here at uh, at our church and he, he gave a, a meditation and it stuck with me. It was the, it was the best way uh, of, of explaining the beauty of the, the Hail Mary specifically, but related into the rosary. And he kind of painted this picture. He said, you know, think of a, of a diamond ring. You have a gold band and a diamond in the middle of it. And he said, think of the Hail Mary as the gold band, right? Think of the first part of the, of the Hail Mary and the second part of the Hail Mary as this setting for the name of Jesus Christ. The center of the Hail Mary is the, is the name of our Lord. It is Jesus Christ. 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And so the setting for the name, you know, the setting on a ring is there to emphasize, to hold, to set forth, to make known and stable and kind of hold the, the diamond, the stone. And so the diamond is, is the name of God, right? At the name of God, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so it's holding for everyone to see the name of our Lord. It's, it's pointing to Christ. It's Christocentric. It's showing us that the entirety of the uh, Marian shape of, of spirituality and, and uh, Our Lady's life is focused on her son. Right. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And that's a, that's a good explanation of kind of what you see right there in the Hail Mary is in essence can be mapped onto the entire rosary. It is, as, um, as Romano Guardini said, and Romano Guardini was a very famous Italian Catholic writer, of the previous century. And I'll reference a book he wrote in just a minute, but he said that the rosary is participation in the life of Mary, whose focus was Christ. And so that is kind of Marian spirituality. It is worship of Christ through veneration of Mary. And these things are not, as we said in the last episode, they're not in competition with each other. So people can get uncomfortable to say to Christ through Mary. First off, that's a devotional principle. It's also a historical principle. We come to Christ through the incarnation, which took place through Mary. But in the rosary, we see this most beautifully depicted that Mary is not the end goal, just as in the Hail Mary prayer, the end goal is not Mary. It's, it's the centerpiece of it all is Jesus Christ. As, as, uh, uh, JP two said that we sit in the school of Mary and we learn of her son. So I think this is why the rosary is so important. It is the supreme method of praying that centers on gospel contemplation. It centers on just meditation with Jesus Christ and the mysteries of his life and the life of his mother but her as a mere human, as we said last time, is a mirror for us in our own path of salvation. What happens to Mary happens in anticipation of what happens to us, right? In, in, in redemption and in salvation. And so also, uh, Guardini in his book, The Rosary of Our Lady, he says there, there's three types of prayer. The first is when a person expresses a sentiment or petition to God. So this is what we often think of prayer. These, this is the offices. This is sitting in, uh, in, your, in your chair and going, Lord, I need help with this today. This is what we think of as prayer. Uh, the second is actually the highest form of prayer. It's the silent com contemplation when words pass away and we behold God in our hearts. Uh, this is kind of the beatific vision version of prayer where words no longer work. But then there's a third type of prayer that is something of a synthesis between these two. So rather than using maybe new fresh words of our own for a specific petition, 
we use the time-tested words of Scripture and of the church, and we meditate upon these same phrases and ideas in order to enter deeper into their meaning and the life of God. So it's meditative, but it's not kind of that pure contemplation of the uncreated light. That's very, very Eastern of you, Father. Not me. Not me, surely. Okay. But so, so in this type of this third type of prayer, the synthesis between using words of our own and using the words given to us from tradition and scripture, repetition becomes key. And so obviously, since we're temporal beings, we need to repeat things over and over and over in order to enter deeper into them. I think sometimes we think because we're repeating something, it means we're trying to get God's attention. But we're doing it for our sake, because three seconds is not long enough for me to meditate on the incarnation. I need longer and longer and longer. And so this repetition is is important. And so obviously the rosary occupies this category of prayer, and I would say probably most supremely in the Western church. Now, speaking about repetition, anytime you bring up repetition, what's the one thing that's always thrown at you? Matthew 6, 7 But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Father Creighton, a concerned parishioner comes up to you and says, I tried to pray the rosary, but it was just vain repetition. What do you say? Well, first off, I'd congratulate them for trying to say the rosary. (laughs) Um, But no, I, I think... I think this is important. I think this is, like you said, this is often a, a criticism that's raised. My first place that I would that I would go to is I would look at something like what we talked about earlier with the divine offices. So sometimes the divine offices are called the opus dei. It is the work, right? It's it's in Benedictine spirituality. It's this it's this sort of prayer and work. It's the work of God. It's it's engaging in this continual, progressive work. And when we pray the offices, you know, uh, as Anglicans, there's the Book of Common Prayer with the morning and evening offices set up for us. As Anglo-Catholics, you know, sometimes uh, we talk about using the breviary or the diurnal, which is just the kind of, you know, monastic um, or secular breviary that's been adapted. Uh, and you know that's that's what the the offices in the Book of Common Prayer are based on. There's a lot of repetition there. There's a lot of repetition of prayers, repetition of uh, scripture readings and psalms, and they kind of they stay fixed, and they they begin to pattern our thought, and they begin to help us get past sort of external uh, distraction. They begin to, uh, to use a modern phrase, they begin to center us. The liturgical sort of stability that we have in Anglicanism, that we have in the Western church as a whole, in Catholic Christianity, and in the Orthodox East, the liturgical patterning that we see, the repetition that we see. We, you know, we celebrate the same feasts every year. We celebrate the, the liturgy every Sunday or maybe every day. 
those things are not vain because they are work for God. They are engaging in the work of God for us. They are worship, adoration of the blessed Trinity. And I think you hit on the main thing, and that is, is repetition wrong or is vain repetition wrong? And you said those things are not vain because they have meaning. And so our Lord is telling us in this verse, don't have vain repetition. And then he explains what vain repetition is. It's what the heathens do. It's what the Gentiles do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. So it would be more of a critique against people who kind of blabber on and on and on and on in worship or in prayer. And they think that because of their eloquent prayers and their kind of on and on and on talking, God will grant their prayers. That's vain. That's not the way prayer works. In the same way that we would think that if you prayed enough Hail Marys, you're going to get what you want. That's kind of bordering on paganistic prayer approaches where you're just manipulating the deity. So the best way to overcome vain repetition is just don't let it be vain. Mean it. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly it. I mean, our mind scripturally goes back to the... Uh, Pharisee and the publican, you know, we have this example for us of some someone praying loudly for everyone to hear, puffed up with his own pride, praying not for the sake of worshiping and, and being in a open, communicative, real relationship with God, but sort of for the sake of uh, his own pride and his own... Um, self-image or public image, whatever it is. And then we have this publican who prays a very humble prayer, but it's a prayer that we all pray all the time, or at least we should. It's small and it's humble. It's, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy, but I'm here. And I, I mean, I can't even look up to heaven. I, I, I'm, I'm weighed down. And our Lord says, that man goes home justified and the other condemnation and reprobation. Yeah, not so much for him. And I, and I think that's the core of, of these types of prayer in the, in the Christian tradition. Uh, we can talk about the, the fact that the East, you know, the Jesus prayer is something that they also repeat, that it's something that they use to form a rhythm of prayer. And the rosary is no different. It's a humble prayer, simply asking as a sinner for the intercession of Our Lady and for grace and salvation from the only person who can give it to us, which is Jesus Christ, her son. Right. And I would say even a, a, a large chunk of the rosary, as we're about to talk about, is 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 prayer and worship adoration towards God, um, the Holy Blessed Trinity. And so this is not merely, I guess I would say, something that focuses upon Mary, because true Marian devotion is what we just talked about. You sit at the feet of Mary, the school of Mary, that she might show you Christ. And so it always guides you and leads you back to Jesus. This is the heart of the rosary. So what exactly does praying the rosary look like? Well, very quickly, you can find stuff like this online as well. Uh, if you have a Dominican rosary, as, as we call it, in front of you, 
the way you pray it is very simple. You start on the crucifix. Many people make the sign of the cross and then they say the Apostles' Creed. So from the beginning, we're rooting our prayer life in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So if you're looking at this going, this is contradictory to the faith of the historic church. Well, from the beginning, we're saying we are, we are setting ourselves under the faith of the church and that those who pray the rosary believe that they're following what the church has always taught and believed. And from that, you then move to the first bead, um, which is kind of set off by itself. And you pray the Our Father, the greatest prayer ever given to us from the lips of our Lord himself. And that sets the tone for the entire rosary, that it is about God's kingdom coming. It's about understanding uh, his his forgiveness, his salvation for us. There's then three little beads where three Hail Marys are said, and these are normally with the intention of for an increase of faith, hope, and charity in our own personal lives or in the lives of those that we, we wish to pray for. Then on the rope, just before the next big bead, we worship God. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Now we start kind of the rosary proper. Those are the preparatory prayers. So holding that next bead, we announce the first mystery. So let's talk about mysteries. What are the mysteries, Father Creighton? So the mysteries of the rosary take us through the biblical account of uh, the life of our Lord and Our Lady. And so we see, we get, we get these uh, moments in salvation history that we are called to meditate upon, that we're called to engage with, to sort of sit and be taught by. And those mysteries are separated into three categories, uh, and we'll, we'll speak about the additional fourth uh, a little bit later on. But we have the joyful mysteries of the rosary, we have the sorrowful mysteries, and we have the glorious mysteries. And I think it'll be good if we start with uh, the joyful mysteries. So the joyful mysteries are the Annunciation, where the angel of the Lord Gabriel comes and announces to Our Lady that she will conceive the Word and, and give flesh to the second person of the Trinity. As we mentioned in the, in the previous episode, this is the causus salutis. This is the, this is the moment for the incarnation. And so we sit and we meditate on the incarnation and its significance. The second is the visitation in which Our Lady visits St. Elizabeth and uh, St. John the Baptist leaps in her womb, um, a, a beautiful affirmation of the, the dignity of human life that St. John the Baptist, the forerunner, uh, recognizes in the womb his Lord and Savior. And Elizabeth, again, echoes that. She says, who who am I that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? So she knows. She, she has insight here. Which is interesting that she gives the veneration to Mary, even though Jesus is present. Right. Right. She says, the mother of my Lord. Now, by saying that, she's recognizing that the Lord is present. But it's interesting she doesn't bow down and say, 
why should the Lord come visit me? Um, anyway, it's just an interesting moment of Marian veneration that leads to worship of Christ. Exactly. That's exactly it. Uh, the next is the birth of our Lord, the Nativity. And, you know, we could spend years talking about the significance of that. Uh, this is sort of Christmas in a nutshell. Then we have the presentation of our Lord in the temple, uh, where our Lord is presented to God in accordance with Jewish law, showing the, the fulfillment, the, the perfection, and the uh, sort of completing of the law in the person of our Lord. Then the next is the finding of our Lord in the temple, which is really interesting because our Lord, as a 12-year-old, is in the temple teaching the doctors, proclaiming the truth of who he is, and astounding them. And Our Lady finds him, this mysterious sort of 12-year-old Christ is, is teaching and everyone is enraptured with what he's saying. And this is a beautiful moment of her contemplating uh, her son. She sees him and she listens to what he has to say. And he says, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? That is, that's something that she sits with and meditates on. So in a sense, the, the joyful mysteries are really, uh, you know, encapsulating what we talked about it, about this being Christocentric. Uh, it's, it's really this, this sort of beautiful engagement in, uh, in salvation history. Well, and if, if they are Christocentric, then even, even more so somewhat is the Sorrowful Mysteries, right? The Sorrowful Mysteries are the, the, the agony in the garden, the scourging at the pillar, the crown of thorns. So kind of the moment of being crowned with thorns. Well, that's, and that's always a powerful one to me because he's being crowned as the king of glory but not with gold and pearls, but with thorns and death and scourging. And then you have Jesus carrying his cross. That's the fourth mystery. And then the fifth mystery is the crucifixion and death. I mean, it's the gospel story right there. And then the glorious mysteries, of course, take us beyond the crucifixion. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, ha I, I hate to say that I have a favorite set of mysteries uh, because they're also amazing and wonderful and, and key, but... I, it's hard not to love the glorious mysteries. I mean, it's just it's just this beautiful sort of culmination of everything. And so after the sorrowful mysteries, you know, we have the young life of our Lord uh, in the joyful mysteries, and we have the passion and, and death of our Lord in the sorrowful mysteries, and then how that's associated with Our Lady and her contemplating it and her heart being pierced and, and, and experiencing the passion and all of these things. Then we have... The resurrection. We have the, the first glorious mystery is the resurrection of our Lord. Then we have his ascension. And in his ascension, he goes to prepare a place for us. He takes human nature into eternal life so that we may join him. Then there's the descent of the Holy Ghost. And in the descent of the Holy Ghost, we have the promised comforter, but also the birth of the church. Then we have the Assumption of Our Lady, where in 
again, this beautiful sort of fulfillment and, and of typology and receiving grace by anticipation, she is assumed into heaven and is given what the goal of the Christian life is for every human, which is to be in God's presence, to be reigning with him in heaven. And part of that is then the final mystery, her coronation. Coronation as queen of heaven, uh, queen of the angels, higher than all. And it's, it's just this beautiful sort of, uh, from the beginning of the joyful mysteries to the, to the final glorious mystery, it's just self. Yeah, and I, I find it so fascinating that the, the Hail Mary prayer itself encapsulates the entire rosary. So the first line of the Hail Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. So this is the opening line of Angel Gabriel's Annunciation. So that's mystery number one in the in the joyous mysteries. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, or ble uh, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. So Jesus is the centerpiece. Well, Jesus is the centerpiece of not only the whole rosary, all the mysteries, but the sorrowful Jesus is front and center with his passion. And then what's the second half or the third, uh, how do I say that? And what's the third part of the rosary? Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Well, how can she pray for us? Where is she that she has the access to pray for us? It's because she is assumed and coronated in heaven. And so the very end of the rosary mysteries. So right there, the, the, the Hail Mary is the whole rosary in, you know, three, three phrases. So it, it seems to be very appropriate that that becomes kind of the prayer of meditation throughout. Exactly. And, and the, the mysteries themselves, you know, it's, it's soteriology, it's ecclesiology, it's eschatology, it's all these things wrapped up, right? It's, and it's the gospel. That's it. This is what kind of hit me. You know, I was very, I said in the last episode when we talked about Marian devotion, I was the most uh, skeptical person of anything Roman when I was coming into the Anglican church. I asked every question, but when I encountered the rosary and I just went, goodness, this is just the gospel presented to us and meditated upon which I'm not sure I've ever done in such a prayerful way. Mm. So it's kind of an apologetic. So many people will sit down and pray all 15 mysteries or all 20, which we'll talk about the additional ones in a second. Um, I know they're just waiting for us to talk about them because we keep kicking the can down the road. <laughs> but there are traditional days for praying different sets of mysteries. And so Sundays kind of change throughout the year. You can look up a traditional chart. But the others are kind of set on a pattern. You go through three and then three. So Monday, Thursday is joyous. Tuesday, Friday is sorrowful, which makes sense. Good uh, Friday is the day our Lord died. And then Wednesday, Saturday is glorious. And then depending on what Sunday is, you might be, you're going to repeat one of the three. You know, for example, Lent is often the sorrowful. Easter tide is glorious. So it kind of makes sense with the church year. So that's kind of the pattern for praying the mysteries. Now, Let's talk about the luminous mysteries. The luminous mysteries, like we said, were suggested and added kind of officially by John Paul II. Now, apparently they have their origins kind of in earlier devotions, 1800s, 1900s. So what are the luminous mysteries? Yeah, the, the luminous mysteries uh, begin with the baptism of our Lord. 
Then we have the wedding feast at Cana, the proclamation of the kingdom, the transfiguration, and then the institution of the Eucharist. So again, I mean, nothing, nothing wrong here. These, <laughs> this is the core of the, of the faith. Again, it's just sort of adding on and expanding um, what we see in the kind of narrative of the, of the mysteries. Uh, and, and again, I mean, I think they're very helpful to, to meditate on these things, um, especially in the, in the manner in which Pope St. John Paul II intended them, um, you know, to, to engage more fully in, you know, the, the Eucharistic centrality of the church, um, in the, uh, importance of proclaiming the kingdom in terms of mission and evangelism and things like that. So you, you can see why at the turn of the, the 20th century into the 21st that he would want to sort of um, add these particular mysteries in as, as they relate to the mission of the church. Uh, but some people uh, prefer to use the, the older system um, of of the 15 that we mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, I kind of go back and forth personally. I tend to stick with the older form. Um, I don't, like you just said, that's what you just gave is a beautiful kind of apologetic for the newer form. I like that the older form is the 150 that correspond and maps onto the 150 Psalms. I think that's kind of cool when you do 150 Hail Marys plus the three in the preparatory, you end up with 153, which St. Thomas Aquinas said is why they called 153 fish after our Lord's resurrection to correspond to the rosary. I think that's incredible exegesis or <laughs> incredible allegory. But no, I don't think there's anything wrong. We're talking about private devotion here. So whatever kind of leads you in your walk with Christ best, do it. Yeah, I think, you know, as, as I kind of go back and forth, um, there are some seasons where I, I'm enjoying the luminous mysteries and I've, I add them in and I pray them. And then others where, um, you know, uh, I'm much more interested or, or kind of focused on the traditional 15. It depends too what we use with our ward of the Society of Mary. Uh, some people just aren't used to the luminous mysteries. If, if they grew up, uh, praying the rosary before they were added, you know, you, you really do like to stick with something that, you know, um, so depending on, on the, who we have and, and kind of their comfort, comfort level, um, I may or may not add them or. Sure. So that was kind of a big tangent on the mysteries. But if we're looking back at our rosary, we're still on that first Our Father bead. We're about, which is just before the medal or whatever you have as the place of the Mary medal. So we've gone through the three uh, Hail Marys for faith, hope, and love. We're now in the first Our Father. We're about to announce a mystery. So different people do this differently. Some people just say, we'll, we'll do joyous since that's the first set of mysteries. They'll say the first mystery the Annunciation, and they kind of pause, they meditate, and then they say the Our Father. Others will read a scripture, or there's even 
in like the St. Augustine prayer book, little devotional paragraphs you can read to kind of orient your mind towards the mystery. Then they say they are father and they go through the decade, which a decade is 10, the, the set of 10 Hail Marys with the our father at the beginning and the glory be to the father at the end. Uh, another way of doing this is they simply announce it quickly, the Annunciation, for example. And then as uh, a lot of different people suggest, but this came by came in front of my eyes by Guardini again, is to add a little line within the Hail Mary itself. So, for example, you would say for the first mystery, the Annunciation, you say the Our Father, and then on the 10 Hail Marys, you would say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, whom thou, O virgin, didst conceive of the Holy Spirit. Holy Mary, Mother of God, etc., etc. And so you're adding a little line within each Hail Mary corresponding to the mystery, and it always comes after the name of Jesus, and it just describes the mystery. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. I think in most public recitations, you just kind of say the straight Hail Mary, and you you just you might add a verse from scripture or you might just announce the mystery. But if you're doing this on your own, sitting on your own couch, again, do what's best for you. Yeah, there's um, there's so many versions and variants out there that you can do. Uh, I know, like my mother, um, you know, she's she's a rosary warrior. She she's constantly praying the rosary. Uh, but she she's partial to something that is often referred to as like the scriptural rosary. It's it's the normal rosary we've been talking about, but it sort of breaks things down at each Hail Mary and provides a line of scripture relevant to the mystery. Uh, and you can see this in various different forms. And that you would say the Hail Mary, then you'd meditate on that line of scripture. Say the Hail Mary, meditate on that line of scripture. And it turns out to be a longer, more meaty sort of meditative process. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that's that's uh, always good. You can find things like that all over the place. And I would give a hearty endorsement of the St. Augustine's prayer book uh, meditations surrounding the rosary, the, the paragraphs. They're, they're great. They're great. Yeah, for sure. So you announce the mystery. You say the Our Father, which... I, th- I have just come to find that that actually ends up being one of my favorite parts of the rosary is you're bringing that mystery into request for the kingdom, for God's will, and you're seeing it actually before your eyes. And so it's really powerful. I always find something in the mystery that corresponds really directly to a line or a word in the Our Father. And then you enter into the 10 Hail Marys. And again, this is the part where you're repeating, you're meditating on the incarnation you're asking uh, the intercessions of Mary that she might show you the depth of this mystery and you work through and then you get to the end and most people hold the chain or whatever yours is made out of paracord if you're into you know rugged rosaries and you say the glory be to the father so you end in worship and adoration of the Trinity because he brought about this mystery and then you grab the next big bead or kind of offset our father bead and you go through it again. And that's what you do. You work through the entire set of mysteries. And if you want to do all 15 or all 20, you just keep going. You go, you go, you go till you've done them all. And then whenever you've kind of ended, you end up 
on the metal. Often it's a merry metal, or I've seen some that are metals of like chalice and host. I've seen some that are St. Benedict medals. It, it can be just about kind of anything. Very common to and, find the miraculous metal. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that, and what you say here is uh, there's a couple variations depending on what era of church history you're talking about, but very common is the hell holy queen, the salve regina. So I feel like we didn't really talk about that last time on Mary devotion because we were saving it for the rosary. So we should talk about this. The the salve is a very old uh, hymn or prayer to to Mary, and it goes like this: Hell, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, Hell, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To Thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To Thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most th- turn then thine eyes, most gracious Advocate, towards us, and after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of Thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. And then there's often a collect added um, afterwards. And and depending on, there's kind of an, Anglicans will often use the collect for the Annunciation that's found in the prayer book. Roman Catholics will say this collect, O God, whose only begotten Son, by his life, death, and resurrection, has purchased for us the reward of eternal life, grant we beseech thee that while meditating on these mysteries of the most holy rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we may imitate what they contain and obtain what they promise. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. So, the Hell Holy Queen might be one of the strongest, most regularly recited Marian prayers in the Western tradition. And it will strike people as odd or borderline idolatrous. So, Father Creighton, you're sitting in your office, you're contemplating esoteric and divine things, and someone knocks on the door and says, Father Creighton, Father Creighton, come in, my child, come in, have a seat. What does it mean when you pray the rosary and we say that Mary is our life, our sweetness, and our hope? Isn't Jesus our life, our sweetness, and our hope? I knew I didn't like you, but now I know you're an idolater. Go. Well, yes. Our Lord is our life, our sweetness, and our hope. (laughs) I I thought you were saying, yes, I am an idolater. Okay. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Oh, I can't can't keep a straight face on that. Um, Yes, I am an idolater. My child, um, no, I, I, I would say that you know, principally, uh, it's not wrong. It's true that our Lord is our life, our sweetness, and our hope. But what we mean when we say that our Lady is our life, our sweetness, and our hope is that first, let's take life. When we say that our Lady is our life, there are a couple different aspects that go into this. We mentioned it last time. She is our example. And so she lives the life that we are called to live. The life of faithfulness, of obedience, of service, of sacrifice. She lives a Christic life. She lives the life that Christ calls us all to live. And she does it 
as a mere human in the most perfect way, in the most exemplary way. And so when we say she is our life, she is, she is the life we're called to live. Now, another aspect to this is the fact that when we say she is our life, we're also referencing her role in the incarnation. Through bearing Christ, she brings life into the world. She brings the first fruits of the new creation. She brings the perfection, the instantiation, the, the reality of our salvation into the world. That's right. As, as my favorite Eastern appellation for the Blessed Mother is, she is the mystical heifer who brings forth the saving calf. I could never in a million years say that seriously. But I think it's awesome. It's, it's got to be a, a translation of Greek or something that just sure. is lost when it comes to English. So I wanted to interrupt you and tell you that. <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's, that's amazing. Uh, but that's what we're referencing when we say that Mary is our life. And when we say she's our sweetness, it's similar, right? That what the Lord has done for Mary is sweet and precious and beautiful. And that we see in that a promise for ourselves, which is the same as our hope, particularly when we meditate upon the assumption, Mary, a mere human, goes to the courtroom of heaven and sits at the right hand of her son and rules, which is promised to all the saints. Yeah, that's, so, that's it. I mean, if, if this does not mean our eschatological hope, our, our purpose, our fulfillment, then we're in trouble. Uh, the fact that she is brought into heaven, the fact that she is given this position of honor, this position of dignity as the queen mother, as the chief amongst saints, that points directly to what is prepared for the Christian. It speaks directly to the goodness, the fidelity, and the fulfillment that we will participate in and, and that we will receive in eternal life. So because of this, kind of those, these three appellations at the beginning and then the rest of the Hell Holy Queen, I really find in it, while it can be kind of stark and uh, kind of confront if you don't have kind of Catholic sensibilities, your mind and your understanding of Mary, it really is in, in a nutshell all of Marian devotion. This is who you are. This is why. And then at the end, show us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Because that's the goal, right? Lead us from kind of what happened to you in your life and in the role of the incarnation. Show us Jesus. And then the refrain at the end, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. What a powerful prayer. Because the fact is, is we get the promises of Christ, eternal life, salvation, grace. We're not worthy. What we're asking is, let us receive the gift in a way that is more acceptable and not just tarnish it and throw it to the side through our sins and through unthankfulness. So it, it really is kind of the school of Mary devotion in one prayer. And that's probably why it's it's been so popular and it's been passed down and it's it's to this day, one of the next to the Hail Mary, it's the next most popular prayer used. 
So that's the rosary. And it worked out really well that I had some guys over from my church last night. Um, we were drinking bourbon and kind of just shooting the breeze. And the topic of the rosary came up. And both of these guys, myself included, so the three of us, were all converts from some sort of Protestant tradition. And we were just discussing what was it like to come in and start praying the rosary. And one of the guys, I just thought he gave this beautiful uh, defense of why he loves the rosary. And he started simply by saying, because it worked. And, okay, what do you, what do you mean? He said, you know, I tried to read about Mariology and it just wasn't clicking. I tried to read from Romans and I tried to read from Easterners and I tried to read Anglo-Catholics, but it just wasn't working. He said, but I, I looked and I said, the rosary is too important to ignore. And so he just started praying it. And he said, after doing it a few times, he said, I can't explain it, but it just makes sense. It, it fits within my Christian life in a way that I never thought it would. He couldn't rationalize himself to it. And so kind of that makes sense in my own life. That's kind of the way, journey I went on. And another, the other guy sitting there said, yeah, that kind of makes sense too. And, I, and I've heard, I, I think it's, it's either Lusky or Florovsky, two Eastern theologians of the 20th century. One of them said, we shout from the rooftops the gospel of Christ, incarnation, death, and resurrection, but we keep close to our hearts our belief and love for the Blessed Mother. And so there's something about, not that we're not afraid to talk about it, but it is this part of our spirituality in our life that's hard to put into words, and it it works, and when you do it, it makes sense. That's beautiful, and I just think it's true. Um, yeah, I, it sounds really strange, but you know, I can give this sort of an apology for. The rosary, I can, I can go through what we've gone through. I can talk about history. I can talk about all these things. But it becomes really difficult when it begins to, you know, when we're talking about sort of our personal engagement with it. It becomes so difficult to actually speak about it and sound intelligent and coherent. Um, it is an experiential thing. It is a deeply personal, prayerful dare I use the word mystical thing where in a beautiful way we sit at the foot of Our Lady um, and we experience her son. And, you know, I, I often think about the fact that, you know, Our Lady being committed and devoted entirely to her son loves us the same way that she loves her son in a way that she looks at us as as members of the body of Christ as Christians with her but has this maternal care for us that she has this maternal desire for us to be fulfilled and a maternal desire for us to be grace-filled and to live the life that her son has called us to live, to experience what she's experienced. She wants that for us. And it's, it's really, it's really staggeringly beautiful. I've had a, a, a beautiful engagement too with the rosary um, 
since ordination, um, tip, typically, and it's, it's talked about um, a lot in, in the Western churches, our, our Lady is Mother of Priests. Because our Lord is the great high priest, because our Lord is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and because all of you know all the the Christian priests participate in the priesthood of Christ, uh, by extension, she is the mother of priests. So there's a particular devotion, um, you know, a sort of priestly affinity to Our Lady, um, and I've been really trying to engage with that um, even more than I typically do. And again, I can't really explain it very well, but it's there and it works. <laughs> hmm, that's great. Yeah. So dear listeners, if you're listening to this and you're going, wow, okay, some of this is starting to make sense. I've never really engaged the rosary. I still have kind of some hangups here and there. Or you still have questions. Of course, you can always reach out to Father Creighton and I, and we would be happy to give as many answers as we could. But I would just recommend just give it a shot. Give it a shot. Try to, you know, get online. Maybe you need to re-listen to what we said about how to do it and just sit down, quiet, meditate, pray, and go through it. And do that for a couple days. And um, I bet you will have similar experiences to what I've recounted with some of my parishioners and with myself. It might work because it's true. All right. Well, we come to that point in our episode where we talk about what we're into. So, Father Creighton, what are you into? Well, um, in addition to what I mentioned last time, I'm also into the Lord of the Rings. I am a mega Lord of the Rings Tolkien nerd. Um, I absolutely adore the Tolkien Legendarium. And for many years, I have read the Silmarillion, The Hobbit, and the Lord of the Rings trilogy every year. Um, I let that slide through seminary. Understandable, I think. Um, but I've picked it up again recently. And there's something nice about getting to the Fellowship of the Ring in October. Um, the fact that so much of the book actually takes place in October. And I'm going to try to finish it by International Tolkien Reading Day, March 25th, which, since we have an episode about Our Lady, is also a very important day in the calendar. It's the Feast of the Annunciation. And it's also the day the ring was destroyed. So I am thoroughly enjoying getting right back into Lord of the Rings. And I've also been listening, and I should say binging, Father Andrew Stephen Damick's podcast, Amon Sul, which is a fantastic engagement with Tolkien fandom and nerdery and uh, Christian faith and, and beauty and theology. It's fantastic. I highly recommend oh. it. Yeah, I've, I, that has come up a couple times, I think, already in this podcast of what I've been into. I've mentioned Amon Sul, and there are just some wonderful episodes that I think just complement what we're trying to do on this podcast, the ancient Christian faith for the modern world, and they do it through Tolkien, and it is amazing. So highly recommend that. I echo all that you're saying. 
So my turn. What am I into? Well, I am into being a dad again. Liz is pregnant. Huzzah. Yes, we're expecting our second baby. And that child, number two, is due April 1st, 2021, which is Maundy Thursday. Lord, in your mercy, hear my prayer. So (laughs) we will see what happens. I've already told you, Father Creighton, that you're only a couple hours away in Atlanta. You better be on call (laughs) for your first Holy Week as a priest (laughs) to come do it solo at my parish. But we'll see. I told that to Bishop Chad. And Bishop Chad said, no, 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 he gets to stay. I'm coming. (laughs) So we'll see. We'll see. But that's what we're into. So all the fun stuff that goes on with uh, growing a new baby. Thankfully, my wife is coming out of first trimester. She's feeling much better and is starting to like food again. And uh, which means that I kind of have some more flexibility with cooking and uh, taking care of a toddler. It was harder the second time around taking care of a baby while also being pregnant, my wife said, was not fun. So how people do it with multiple children um, is yet to be seen. So that's what we're into. Well, listeners, if you like what we're doing, as always, help other people find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and share us with your friends. Don't forget, you can support The Sacramentalist at Patreon for $5 a month. And you can always email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalist.com at gmail.com. And now may the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.